0: All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, open to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be in the latter part of chapter 15 this morning. And as you guys are turning there, I'll I'll tell you guys, I have for years always had a uh, curiosity. Uh, Maybe it's movies like Matrix. Uh, Maybe it's just all the action movies that are out there. I've always wondered, is it actually humanly possible to dodge a bullet? All right, I've always kind of wondered this. I know it's a little crazy, right? But there have actually been studies that have been done, all right, to measure human reaction times. And then I've actually concluded this that it is actually humanly possible to dodge a bullet if the bullet is fired 800 yards away or further, all right? According to studies, according to statistics, and what we've found in research, that it takes a quarter of a second for the human ear to register the sound of a gunshot. In that quarter of a second, a bullet would have traveled 200 yards. It takes another quarter of a second for the human mind and the nervous system to send a response to the muscles to inform them and to communicate to them that they need to move, All right. And then at that point, the bullet's covered another 200 yards. And then it takes literally half a second for the muscles to respond and to actually move you from where you were. So it takes literally just one second and your body can register the sound of a gunshot, send a reaction to your muscles, and your muscles can actually move you. And in that time, a bullet will have traveled 800 yards. And so if a bullet is fired 800 yards away or further, it is actually humanly possible to dodge it, all right? You believe that? I was always stunned by that, and as I was reading further, uh, there's a guy uh, named Sebastian Younger who's written a book called War, and he even communicates and talks along those lines saying, yeah, it is actually humanly possible. And he talks a little bit further that the moment that the body then hears, responds, and moves, then the fight-or-flight system, response system that is within each one of us then kicks into gear, and what ends up happening is that adrenaline is released. Uh, Your heart rate uh, increases, your respiratory rate increases, blood moves from your digestive system to your muscles to remove in invasive uh, emergency manners, and your awareness tightens, your sight sharpens, and all of a sudden you make a split-second decision whether you're going to fight and take the conflict head on or whether you're going to run for your life, All right? A split-second decision is made in that moment to either turn and face or turn and run. In fact, it's interesting, many will say as they look at soldiers at war who find themselves in an ambush, firefight, that that before they know it, they've made a decision that they've not even consciously made as to whether they're going to turn and face or whether they're going to turn and run. And so there are soldiers that will live their entire lives in regret for a decision that they don't even remember making. There are even soldiers that will be rewarded medals of honor and valor for decisions that they don't even remember making because it happens that fast and the fight or flight response system within you actually bypasses your rational mind, all right? You just respond and you react. That when there's a threat to your being so severe, your system just moves into another gear and you just make it a split second decision that you're not even conscious of. It's interesting, I think, for many of us, none of us are ever going to find ourselves necessarily in a firefight, ambush situation with bullets flying around, right? Hopefully not for some of us, right? I think I just freak out, all right? Uh, But I think, honestly, I think every single one of us does find ourselves in combat situations, not necessarily militarily, but relationally, right? Maybe even this morning for you, you found yourself squaring off with your roommate this morning before you went to church, right? (laughs) Right? Um, Maybe some of you guys even over the winter break found yourself at odds with your mom or your dad duking out old battles that you've always had. None of us are strangers to conflict. The combat may not be hand-to-hand unless you're a guy potentially, right? But often the combat is word-to-word. You find yourselves in combat conflict situations all the time. And I want to submit to you that in many ways, for many of us, we've never seen conflict modeled in a healthy, redemptive way. And so for many of us, our very system registers conflict as a bad thing, and we move into survival tactics, right? For so many of us, we respond in conflict situations in ways that we don't even realize that we're doing before we've actually done them, because we're so trained in that manner. What I want to do for us this morning as we look at this passage at the end of Acts chapter 15 is we're going to find two individuals who are going to get into it, two individuals who are going to cross swords, two individuals that are going to find themselves in a conflict probably way before they ever realized what was happening. And I think they're going to possibly respond to way before they even realize what they were doing. And we're going to see not just a case of fight or flight, we're going to see a case of fight and fight, all right? We're going to have two guys who are going to duke it out. And frankly, it's going to be an incredibly surprising situation because what we're going to see from Acts 15 in this particular story is we're going to see a situation and an example when godly people disagree. We're going to see that a conflict is going to break out at the end of chapter 15 that you would never have seen coming, all right? If you guys were with us last week, we looked at uh, the earlier part of Acts chapter 15, and we saw two guys, Paul and Barnabas, who have been doing ministry together throughout much of Asia Minor, and they've been seeing God do so many amazing things that people were taking notice and beginning to ask questions as to what was going on. And an argument breaks out as to the nature of salvation, as to how you and I can even have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and Paul and Barnabas go to battle on those arguments and those issues, and they are on the same side. (laughs) In fact, that argument's going to break out to such a huge height that a church council will have to be convened, and these guys are told to go to Jerusalem so that the church can convene and figure out what in the Sam Hill is going on, all right? And they wrestled through that, and basically, Paul and Barnabas ended up on the right side of one of the biggest church arguments that the church would ever have in the early church in the book of Acts, all right? They landed on the same side. But all of a sudden here at the very end of chapter 15, we're going to see them landing now on different sides of a different conflict. And I want you guys to notice how absolutely fast it happens. Chapter 15, verse 36, Luke tells us that after some days, (laughs) quick little uh, narrative detail here for you. It didn't take long for us to come off the heels of the great victory at the church council in Acts 15 for all of a sudden Paul and Barnabas to begin to disagree, right? Right. They had this great euphoric moment uh, in which they went against all these false teachers and they won. And now just a few days later, they're in a conversation. They're going to begin to disagree. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, and so the conflict has become not just in a short time, but between two surprising parties. I think for many in the early church, they would have seen Paul and Barnabas as almost interchangeable and definitely inseparable, right? These two guys were together all of the time, all right? Uh, And I don't know if you guys have ever had friends like this in college where they're together all the time, so much so they begin to dress alike, they begin to talk alike. You don't even know where one person ends and the other person begins, right? They don't even know what's original to them anymore. They're just kind of this enmeshed unit, all right? They're almost interchangeable. They're always together. And and definitely you could never imagine anyone being able to separate them, all right? I think Paul and Barnabas were like that. And you guys have had college friends who are like that. I'd say some of you college girls are like that, all right? And I'll tell you for the guys, it's maddening, all right? Here's why we want to ask you out at times, and you're always with your friends, and so there's no moment just to get you by yourself to ask you out, and so ladies, this is free of charge advice, but if your dating life isn't all that you hope it is, create some moments where guys could approach you, all right? Uh, this is free of charge. You may not have ever noticed that. I'm just helping you out, all right? That could be something new resolution for the spring, all right? Uh, but guys, girls, we land together at times. There are circles of friends. There are people and relationships all the time that frankly seem absolutely interchangeable. You could take one or the other. You don't even know who's who anymore, and they're definitely inside I think Paul and Barnabas were that way, right? You look at their great victories throughout the book of Acts in terms of their ministry. You look at Acts chapter 15 in terms of their standing together at the church council and winning the day and winning the biggest argument the church would have through the book of Acts. And now just some days later, these two guys are going to square off at each other and they're going to find themselves on different sides of an argument. And it's not just that they're surprising parties, but they're also going to have a stunning situation in which they're going to argue over. Notice what the text says. Verse 36, Paul says to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Ultimately, what Paul and Barnabas are wanting to do, what they have a common vision to do, is to go back and essentially backtrack where they had been. Uh, Some of your Bibles will have a little heading over this section that says Second Missionary Journey, all right? Paul and Barnabas are, in a sense, laying out leg two of this great missionary enterprise, all right? They've been all over the place through Asia Minor. They've come to Jerusalem for this council. And now they're saying, hey, let's, let's plot out missionary journey number two, all right? And ultimately what they decide to do is that they're going to backtrack everywhere they had been in terms of the places they had seen God move miraculously. And they're going to announce the great victory that they had at the church council. They want everyone to know, hey, here's what we've decided. In a sense, what this second missionary journey is an elaborate parade route, all right? These guys are wanting to go back to all the people that had come to Christ, all the people that had thought much of them, been blessed by them, been led by them, and they want to come and announce the victory that has been said at the church council in Acts 15. This is nothing more than prayed route planning, all right? And yet, it's going to be in the parade route logistical planning that these guys are going to argue with one another as to who should be on the parade float. Notice what happens. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted uh, to take John, called Mark, along with him also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not had gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. (laughs) What? These two guys get in a, a knocking of heads with one another, and then they just peace out. They just peace out. All right. They're arguing as to who is going to be on the parade float, people, and they can't settle it, and they just check out. All right. I, I was imagining Macy's Day Parade at Thanksgiving, and imagine these guys had elaborated this giant and, and playing this giant float that they were so proud of, and it's the day of the parade, and another dude shows up and is jumping on the parade float, and imagining one of the guys just losing it and saying, there's no way. And then the two guys on the float of this Macy Day parade just begin to duke it out and fight and they blow the parade up, All right? That's exactly what happens in Acts 15. Seriously, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. If conflict can find these two guys, then you and I don't stand a chance, right? If conflict can find these two guys who love the Lord mindedly and are walking with the Lord and committed the entirety of their lives to the Lord and they're engaged in the Lord's work and if they can't figure it out, Oh, man, we're in trouble, right? And one of the things I want you guys to see from the very beginning here as we jump in this passage is that conflict is inevitable. If they can find Paul and Barnabas, it's going to find you and your roommate. It's going to find you and your family. It's going to find you and your friends. It's going to find you in every arena at any time with anyone, All right, Conflict is absolutely inevitable. I want to submit to you guys that in many ways, I think these guys could have handled this a little bit differently, right? It didn't have to play out this way, all right? But I think in many ways, I think they just respond and they react. And before they know it, they've split off and they're moving in separate directions, right? And yet, I want to say to you guys, I think conflict is inevitable. But I think the result of it isn't necessarily always destructive. Conflict is inevitable, but the results of it are not always destructive. The key is how do you respond to it? I think Paul and Barnabas had godly reasons for why they wanted to do what they did here. I think Paul looked at uh, this guy named John Mark, who, according to Acts 13 13, earlier deserted them in the first missionary journey. And Paul says, Hey, this guy was a distraction. This guy was a drain. This guy did not represent Jesus Christ. We're not taking him again. All right. I think Barnabas thought, Hey, this is, uh, we know from Colossians 4, this guy was his cousin. I think he had a soft spot for this guy named John Mark. And I think he wanted to give John Mark a second chance. Paul is not contrary to grace. In fact, if you look at verse 40, notice the text says this, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Paul, even in this situation, even in this argument, I don't think he was antithetical to grace. (laughs) If If there's anyone who was willing to give second chances, it was surely the apostle Paul because he had some issues and baggage in his past, didn't he? I don't think he was contrary to second chances. I think these guys just arrived at a situation. They saw it differently, not because of sin per se, I just think they approached it with a sense of wisdom that landed them in different spots. And I don't think anything was necessarily wrong with either of them. I think sometimes conflict just happens. Sometimes we just disagree with one another. Godly people can do it. (laughs) We know ungodly people can do it, but godly people can do it as well. The key is, and the question is, how do we respond? (laughs) If conflict is inevitable, how do we prevent it from being destructive? First thing I want to say to you guys is this. I think the way that you and I respond is that we don't run and we don't freak out. If conflict is inevitable and if it's natural, then when it arrives at our doorstep, we don't run and we don't freak out. I want to say to you guys, I think some of you guys have never, ever in your lives seen conflict handled in a redemptive, holy manner that led to something redemptive and fruitful. Maybe you guys came from homes where you saw mom and dad duke it out and it wasn't pretty. There was one parent who may have been physically or even verbally abusive and there was another parent who just took it. And what you saw in their marriage was something that you don't want repeated. Except you just never seen it modeled differently and so when conflict comes into your life you immediately go into fight or flight response system because you're afraid the same thing that you saw in that marriage is going to happen in your life and in your relationships and your friendships and so you freak out. One of the first things I want you guys to hear this morning is that godly people will disagree, and it's okay. (laughs) Conflict isn't necessarily horribly bad, all right? Conflict can be good if we respond in the appropriate manner. And one of the things I'm going to do for you guys here as this passage unfolds is show you exactly what God can do and what he does with this conflict. Great good is going to come out of it. But for so many of us, we see conflict arrive in our lives, and, and we go into survival mode because we're so afraid of it. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to perceive it. We don't know how to treat it. And so one of the things I want to tell you guys, and secondly, is don't bury it and then explode on someone. (laughs) Don't run away and freak out. Don't bury it and just take it because eventually you're going to explode on someone. Either of those opportunities, either of those situations is not going to be in leading to a healthy kind of relationship and God will not be able to accomplish what he may want to accomplish in that conflict if you respond in either of those ways. Every single one of us responds in one of those ways, right? Some of us either tend to just blow up and explode on people, or some of us tend to just bury it and shut up and just take it. We want to avoid conflict at all costs. Some of us want to head first right into conflict. Every single one of us kind of goes one way or the other. But each of those approaches really don't land you where you need to for God to accomplish what he may want to in and through the conflict that you may find yourself in. So what do you do? I'm going to give you guys two ideas. Um, Even before that, I want to say one last thing, and that's this, that I think some of you guys are so scared of conflict that for some of you guys who are looking at getting married, I'm going to give you guys a wake-up call, and that's this. For me, as I'm looking at a couple who wants to get married, a couple who's engaged or looking toward engagement, I will tell you the absence of conflict in that relationship is way more troubling to me than the presence of conflict. Let me say that again. For a couple who's looking at engagement or marriage, I'm going to ask them, Hey, tell me about your fights. (laughs) That's a fun one, right? Tell me about your disagreements. Tell me about how that works out. What do you guys fight over, right? Because if you're not fighting over something, then I'm pretty afraid that there's not a lot of communication, there's not a lot of trust, there's not a lot of honesty going on. That if there isn't conflict happening, then I'm actually worried more about the relationship than if there is conflict, because conflict is a good thing and a natural thing. And so if it's not happening, something's wrong, right? Conflict is good and it can be used for redemptive purposes if we respond appropriately. And so here's what we have to do. Two things I want to give you guys. First is this, learn to communicate. (laughs) Learn to communicate. Some of you guys need to begin to step forward and begin to communicate with with a partner, with a friend, with a roommate, with a family member, and begin to share, hey, here's how I feel. Here's how this makes me feel. Here's what's going on. Here's why I feel rejected or why I feel distant right now. Some of you guys just bury it and walk away. And then you begin to lose out on the relationships that you could have. There could be a much greater depth than you could imagine if you would just communicate. When you fail to communicate, you're actually making a value statement on that relationship that says it's not really worth fighting for. Secondly, I'd say this, I'm going to challenge you guys to begin to seek what God may be wanting to do in and through your conflict to not freak out, to not run away, <laughs> to not explode on someone but to begin to stop and begin to learn to communicate with that party and also begin to prayerfully come before the Lord and say, Lord, what is it you're doing? What is it you maybe wanting to accomplish in and through my life in the midst of this conflict that I never chose nor necessarily wanted to run after? But here I am. What do you want to teach me? What do you want to do in my life through this? What is it you're trying to stretch me to? What is it you're trying to help me see that I've never seen before? Grow me in and through this situation. Help me have that kind of heartbeat. I think God can and will do much in and through the conflicts that we find ourselves in if we're willing to be teachable and willing to be open before the Lord for him to move in and through us as he may desire. Because God can do much through conflict. All right. Uh, What you're going to see in the rest of this passage really is what God is going to do in and through this conflict. It looks nasty from the beginning. All right. But what's really fascinating as we kind of walk through the rest of the story is what God is going to accomplish in and through this conflict. And the first is this, that God is going to advance his work through this conflict. That when godly people disagree, it doesn't mean that God is, in a sense, uh, in handcuffs and cannot continue to push forward his purposes and what he may be wanting to do in and through individuals' lives or in and through even the ministry or the church. (laughs) All kinds of conflicts happen in a church. (laughs) All kinds of conflicts occur in Christian organizations on campus. It happens all the time because we still have flesh, because we're still hostile to the purposes of God, and we're still waiting for God to come and take away our sinful natures. And when he does that, then we'll no longer have conflict. But until he does, we're going to still have conflict. And the issue is when godly people disagree, I want you guys to hear that it's not just a bad thing, but God can actually still work in and through their lives and in and through that conflict to accomplish what he wants to do. One of the first things that we're going to see from this story is that one of the ways that God will advance his work is that he's going to lead uh, these missionaries and the ministry there to have a broader scope. Because of this conflict, God is going to accomplish something wider and broader than if they hadn't disagreed with one another. Now, let me kind of give you guys a little bit of a different glimpse at this. For many of you guys, uh, if you've ever had a chance to golf with me, uh, you don't want to. <laughs> all right. I, I think there's a reason why golf is a four-letter word. It is that frustrating for me. All right. I absolutely hate golf. It is not a relaxing hobby for me. All right. I feel all day long for four or five hours, however long it's going to take me, that I am in constant conflict with everything in my life while I play golf. All right. The clubs do not do what I want them to do. The course does not do what I want it to do. So I am upset, angry, and in conflict with everything that I touch, everywhere I walk, and even my golf buddies who are trying to give me advice, all right? It is not a peaceful time. It is not a time to relax and be a hobby for me, all right? All day long, I am in conflict, but the reality and the result of that conflict for me on the golf course is that I get a broader experience of the course than anyone else gets, all right? Uh, Those people who are good at golf and experience the tee box, the fairway, the putting green, that's nice and all. I get to experience much more of the course. I'm getting more for my money, right? I'm seeing the out-of-bounds areas, right? I'm seeing the rough, right? I'm seeing and getting to fish my ball out of water. I mean, it's amazing. I'm getting sand in my shoes. It's like a day at the beach. It's fantastic, all right? <laughs> my conflict with the golf course leads to a broader experience and scope of my time on the course. These PJ professionals, they don't have what I have. They also don't lose their balls at 20 uh, balls a clip each day, right? But I do, and that's wonderful, all right? My conflict with the course leads to a broader experience of my time on the course. The conflict that Paul and Barnum are going to get into here is going to lead to a broader scope of the ministry and the missionary journeys that God is intending and wanting to work in them, all right? I don't think they necessarily landed here because of sin. I don't think necessarily God was trying to cause them to get into a fight with each other. But what God does with this inevitable conflict is that he's going to work it out such that the missionary journeys are going to expand and they're going to have a broader reach than they would have had it without this conflict. Notice, notice the text again, verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and he sailed away to Cyprus. They just peace out and split off. So Barnabas takes Mark and he heads off to Cyprus and knows where Paul goes, verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling to Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. These guys get into it. They cross swords. They have a disagreement. They get so sharp that they break off from one another. But here's what God does. He takes these two guys and he ends up expanding the reach of these missionaries and the reach of his church because of and through this conflict. <laughs> Did God cause the conflict? No, I don't necessarily think that. But what God can still work in and through this is his greater good, which you and I need to realize. Conflict can be good, and God can work great things out of it. fact, even further, what we see is that it's not just that he leads a broader scope of the ministry, but even a greater depth. Notice what happens in chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But the father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders at the church council who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. I think the second thing that this conflict does is it creates a new opportunity for leaders to emerge. Would Timothy have emerged in this kind of way, apart from the conflict and apart from the separation, not necessarily. I think God begins to work great good out of this conflict because he can redeem conflict and he can accomplish something significant through it. That's what he does. He expands the reach of the ministry and of the church and he expands the depth and he causes new leaders to step up in the midst of new opportunities. God works great good out of this conflict. And God can work great good out of the conflict that you find yourselves in this morning, Right? I don't know what conflict it is. I don't know what in relationship you're finding yourself in. But I want to challenge you that, hey, God can do something good from it. God can work great good out of it. And if he accomplishes something great practically, but not necessarily relationally, then I think we've lost things, though. And what I want you guys to see, we're not going to see it here from Acts 16. But I want to show you guys some other passages. Because what we see here is that initially God brings some great good initially that's practical. But then later on, what we're going to see, this story unfolds in some other places throughout the New Testament is that God works great good relationally because these two guys it out and they come back on the same page later on. It's not just that something good comes practically, but God will bring about a restoration relationally. All right, good comes, but the relationship is also restored. Notice what happens as we look at the story. God is going to restore these relationships. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is speaking to their churches and they are arguing that, remember, Paulus went off this way, Paul went off this way, and an argument is breaking out that, hey, I'm with Apollos uh, or with Barnabas, And some are saying, no, no, I'm with, I'm with Paul. And Paul says, hey, hey, this kind of allegiance, this kind of separation is not what the church is about. In fact, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 9 in a very respectful, very admiring way of Barnabas in 1 Corinthians 9, 6 to show us Paul and Barnabas got back on the same page later on. Their relationship got worked out. They restored it and they found resolution. Not just with Barnabas. Paul also finds it with John Mark. 2 Timothy, the last book Paul writes at the very end of his ministry as he's awaiting his own death and execution. He writes this at the very end of the last letter. He says, telling Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. Incredible verse here. Paul and Barnabas are going to argue and raggle over this one guy. But by the end of Paul's life and by the end of the ministry, this guy has been restored, not just to the community, but he's been restored to ministry. And Paul wants him and recognizes him and makes a call out to him, right? It's not just that God works great good out of this, but God also brings about a restoration of these relationships because that is what it's all about. The question I want to ask for you guys is how do you and I arrive at that place? How do you and I begin to move toward restoration? How does that get accomplished? It gets accomplished for Paul and Barnabas, but how does it get accomplished for you and I? What is it that you and I have to do? I'll tell you guys, I think that in many ways conflict is inevitable, the resolution is supernatural. Conflict is inevitable and it's going to happen for you and I, but the ability to bring about resolution, the ability to patch things back up and to have a redeemable practical benefit from it is a supernatural thing that you and I don't figure out on our own. In fact, the first time we ever saw this modeled was from Jesus Christ himself, which is why Paul will speak of reconciliation and he'll run us right to the topic of Jesus and what Jesus has done. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Conflict was inevitable. It was inevitable from the garden all the way back in Genesis Genesis 3. It took basically two chapters for conflict to break out in the very beginning of creation, right? It takes about two seconds for conflict to break out in our lives sometimes. It's going to happen in the parking lot as you guys are trying to leave this morning, right? Come on, let's go, right? You know, Freaking out at people, right? Conflict is absolutely inevitable, but resolution to conflict, the kind in which the, God can accomplish redeemable purposes and bring about a restoration relationally, is supernatural, Conflict is inevitable, but resolution is supernatural because the first place we ever saw it was with what Jesus Christ did for you and I. The only place you and I have ever seen true reconciliation, the kind of reconciliation that we're to model, is in what Jesus has done for us, right? In fact, the scriptures tell us that while we were enemies of Jesus Christ, while we were sinners, while we were hostile to him, Jesus took upon himself human nature and he died in our place so that we would not incur the penalty for our conflict. Scripture said that we're actually in conflict with God and yet God has stepped down in the course of human history and he offered himself on a cross so that you would not have to be in conflict with God any longer. Jesus said, hey, I, I got this. I'll take it on myself so that you don't have to deal with it so that you and my father can be reconciled. What Jesus had done for us is about a model of what you and I are doing in the midst of conflict that breaks out because without it, you and I will not step toward Restoration. What Jesus shows us is a model, not just the good news of the gospel, how you and I can have a relationship with Jesus, but he also shows us a model for how you and I are to handle conflict. That what Jesus does that is so hard for you and I is that Jesus lays down his rights and his prerogatives. So that reconciliation can happen. Did Jesus have to leave the glories of heaven and the comforts of heaven? And did he have to take on human flesh? <laughs> no, but he does. He lays aside his own prerogative. He lays aside his own comfort and his convenience and his rights And he comes and he identifies with human nature so that he can identify with you and I. And he doesn't just come to identify to be a buddy and a homeboy for us, but he stands in our place and dies for us because ultimately God's wrath had to be satisfied and he didn't want the wrath of God to fall on us. And so what Jesus does, is he lays down his rights so that he can identify with us and then he can take it on himself so that resolution and reconciliation can happen. And what we get in that is a great model for how reconciliation is maintained and how resolution is moved toward Um, In many ways, even in in the chapter 16, you find that Timothy, one parent is uh, Jewish, one parent is Greek, is going to willingly be circumcised for the sake of the ministry and the sake of the gospel. He's going to lay down his rights of convenience and comfort. He's going to be circumcised at an old age. Hello, right? (laughs) For the gospel so that people could be reconciled to God. He's going to lay down his rights. He's going to lay down his conveniences. He's going to lay down his comfort so that men and women can be reconciled to God and that he will not be a stumbling block and a point of adversity and difficulty within the community at large. And so he's circumcised and he lays down his rights. Um, I've I've quoted for you guys um, before, one of my favorite books that I read this past summer was called Unbroken, written by a lady named Laura Hildenbrand. She also wrote Sea Biscuit, if you guys read that or caught the movie. Incredible book. Um, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but I kind of got kind of to set up the story for you guys a little bit. But uh, it's written of a guy named Louis Zapparini, who is in the 1930s an uh, Olympic medal runner, all right? And then he ends up going into the military. He ends up being on a bomber plane uh, in, in a mission during World War II, and his bomber plane goes down in the, over the open ocean. He ends up being lost at sea for over 40 days, all right? Incredible difficulty that he experiences, okay? And over 40 days, his body weight drops from about 155 to about 80. All right, kind of malnourishment, the kind of suffering, the kind of experience that none of us ever want to deal with. Well, as luck would have it, this guy would land and would drift over miles and miles of open ocean, and he would land in an island not inhabited by natives but controlled by the Japanese. That's not lucky, right? And for the next few years, basically, he is in a prisoner of war camp where he is tortured and he is tormented, and where his fame as an Olympic medal runner is known, and he is uniquely singled out and tortured and tormented by prison guards and by prison captains. All right. Untold torment that goes on stories told that eventually as he's rescued, he's brought back to the States and his, in a sense adjustment from those experiences comes really difficult. As you can imagine, he ends up drinking a ton to cover over and to wash out those past memories and those past experiences. Alcohol becomes the only means by which he can finally get that stuff out from his own recollection and his own consciousness. But again, that's only for temporary. And so he drinks and he drinks and he drinks. He cannot hold a job. He cannot hold a marriage. But eventually a girlfriend or a wife brings him to a Billy Graham crusade. No lie. In the 40s. All right. He comes to Jesus Christ and as God begins to work in his life, he ends up becoming a motivational speaker. All right. For what God had did in his life and what God can accomplish through our lives. It's fascinating, really, as you look at the story, though, because ultimately this guy, as he came back to the States, he dreamed of one thing and one thing only for the longest time. He dreamt that he would return to Japan, hunt hunt down the guy who tortured and tormented him and murder him. All right. He would eventually get an opportunity to, to return to Japan, but for an incredibly different purpose, not to hunt the guy down, but to go and, and to preach a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And the story is fascinating because even for himself, he wonders as he looks at these prison guards and looks in their eyes and recognizes and has all these experiences and flood of emotions come back. He wonders how he's going to respond. Will he maintain the peace and forgiveness that he's found or will he pick back up anger and want vengeance upon them? The story unfolds and it tells of his response and as he walks into a room in which 850 prison guards are now prisoners uh, on crimes of war, as he walks into a room and begins to recognize their faces, this is his response. The story tells us that Louis was seized by childlike giddy exuberance and before he realized what he was doing, he was bounding down the aisle in bewilderment. The men who had abused him watched him come to them, his hands extended and a radiant smile on his face. I was thinking in many ways, could that disposition and could that pose not be more of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I, right? Arms extended and a smile on his face to say, hey, I will give my life for you because I love you. I know where you've been. I know how you've transgressed me. I know that we have a conflict, but I will die in your place so that we can be reconciled. What I also love too of the story as the narrator tells us is that before he realized what he was doing, he was bounding down the aisle. That in the midst of a conflict, God had so retrained him So then now when the fight or flight response system kicked in, his instinctive response was completely different. Conflict is inevitable, but that kind of resolution is supernatural. That God could accomplish that and move an individual to that kind of place, looking at those kinds of people who have accomplished that kind of torment in his life is absolutely supernatural. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I will tell you that the best place that you will ever find reconciliation, love and acceptance is in in God. You can run and you can search and you can look and you can look, but you'll never find one who will accept you just as you are, who will forgive you and love you absolutely unconditionally. Only Jesus has and only Jesus has paid the payment for your sins so that you do not have to begin conflict with him anymore. And it's not just that you then enter into a relationship where you find a sense of security and confidence that you'll find in no other human relationship, but also you begin to get a model and the Spirit of God begins to work in you to retrain your own fight or flight response to conflict to not replay and rehearse what the kind of vengeance you want to have and the conflict and the people that have wronged you. Begin, but begin to begin to let that go and lay that down so that you can find forgiveness and begin to extend peace. tell you guys, even for me this morning, I was praying through this morning, praying through this message, and I found myself drifting off actually to a, a relationship I have in my own life that consistently frustrates me and consistently feels like it wrongs me and my family. And I found myself rehearsing in my own mind as I was trying to pray this morning for what I'd love to say to that person, how I'd love to go off on them, right? How I would love to just let them have it and set things straight and then move forward, right? And I was just shocked by the irony of that moment of, but the very thing I have to do is learn to let it go and forgive them and let it go. To move forward towards them with a kind of peace, a kind of acceptance, a kind of love that only can be accomplished if you know Jesus Christ and if you allow him to work in your life in such a way where he will accomplish the supernatural in and through you. And what's fascinating is you move in relationships in that kind of way is that the world begins to get a picture, a living testimony of exactly what Jesus Christ has done and they will take notice because it is absolutely supernatural and you will find it nowhere else. So I want to ask you this morning, even as we wrap up, what is the relationship, what is the conflict in your life? (laughs) Who is the individual that you rehearse in your mind and you play over and over again, not just how you've been wronged, but if you had an opportunity, how you'd let them have it? (laughs) It's not just me. I know every single one of us has those moments where we want to hold on to the vengeance and the justice that we want. And what you and I have to do is we have to lay it down and let it go and sacrifice our rights to be understood, to be vindicated, and let God do what he's going to do and express and extend forgiveness, kindness, and peace. To cover up over that conflict and to move back toward reconciliation, it doesn't mean that you don't communicate. But it means that your own rights of convenience, your own rights of enacting vengeance and justice, you have to lay down and you say, you know what? God has redeemed me. And so I can move toward people with the kind of forgiveness, recognizing that God did not count my trespasses against me. So I'm not going to count their trespasses against them either. The kind of forgiveness that he's extended to me, I can extend to others and begin to move towards them, towards reconciliation, towards kindness and toward peace. I don't know who that person is in your life. I don't know what situation you rehearse in your minds, whether it's a family member, whether it was your upbringing, whether it's a conflict that you still have not gotten past. But maybe today is the day that you say, you know what? It's time that this thing does not hold me. And as you rehearse it and as you play it over and over, you are not holding it. It is holding you. And it's time, and maybe the time is today that you say, you know what? I'm going to move in a different direction today. I'm going to let go of vengeance. I'm going to let go of justice. I'm going to trust that God will deal with it in his time and in his way. And in the meantime, I'm going to show them what's been shown to me through Jesus Christ. And so let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for the marvelous grace that you've extended to us, that you've given us what we don't deserve, that you've not counted our trespasses against us, that you've moved toward us with peace, with mercy and with grace, that you lay down your own rights so that we could be reconciled to you. Lord, and I pray that you allow us to move in that kind of way in our own lives. Father, I pray for the situations and the relationships in our lives that we go to, that we think of, why do these people continue to wrong me? Why does this individual in my family or in my roommate circle or in my class continue just to take advantage over and over again? Father, I pray you to grow us in wisdom, knowing how not just to run and hide, not just to bury it, but begin to move towards people to communicate, but to communicate with loving kindness, not looking for vengeance, not looking for a pound of flesh, but to show and to demonstrate the love of God extend the kind of forgiveness that's been extended to us. And Father, for those who, who are here this morning who have maybe even never tasted of your forgiveness, who maybe have never been yet reconciled to you, Lord, I pray that today could be the day where they could taste that for the first time and that they would find in you a kind of acceptance, a kind of security they can find in no other human relationship. And Father, I pray for us in the midst of the relationships that we have and the conflict we find ourselves in, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not be scared of it. You'd help us to not think that our own survival is being threatened, Lord, but I pray that you'd allow us to have eyes to see the opportunity and what you may want to teach us and how you may want to grow us and what you may want to accomplish. And Father, I pray that in the midst of the kind of conflicts that we have as we'd find resolution in them, Lord, I pray that you would grow a depth, a security, a confidence, and a commitment in those relationships that we cannot find apart from resolving conflict. Lord, allow us not to be the kind of people that just run away and constantly live with superficial relationships of no trust and of no communication. Lord, allow us to have the courage to do the hard work, to communicate, to put ourselves out there even more vulnerably so that you could bring about a resolution and a depth of commitment and trust and relationships that we'll never find apart from the willingness to come forward and to do the hard work to resolve conflict. Lord, allow us to resemble, allow us to model something that the world could see that very much resembles what you've done on our behalf. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen.